Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, February 19th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, as always, anything that you see or hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for general knowledge consumption. I am not a financial advisor. I am not authorized by your statist government overlords to give you personal financial advice. So you need to do your own due diligence. You need to take your own responsibility. It's your money. It's your issue. So let me move this over here. I wanted to talk about one of the indicators that I use to determine when things are getting out of whack and I might want to start selling down some of my positions. So what this is, is this is on the St. Louis uh, Fred site. They have all the data you can go on and get data. You can go look this up yourself. This is look in the upper left of this chart. It tells you what I'm looking at. Basically, this is the um, spread between the uh, high yield index, which are junk bonds and the 10-year treasury rate. And what you can notice is you can take this back if you go on the St. Louis Fred, uh, Fred site and look at the previous recessions. And one thing you'll see, this is the pandemic uh, recession, if you will. You see what happened was as liquidity tightened, as conditions got bad, as we had the, the dislocations in markets, the spread between junk bond yields and treasury yields blew out. Why? Because people become fearful, liquidity shrivels up, junk bonds are very risky or more quite a bit riskier than treasuries. And so people begin selling them. And if you recall, the interest rates on bonds are inversely inverse to the price of the bond. So when people start selling, liquidity dries up, general interest rates are going up, you have a tendency to see these things blow out. People go into treasuries, which causes the price of those to go down and rates or uh, the prices to go up and the rates to go down for a safe haven. And they sell off junk bonds, which are riskier and they blow out. And so what we're seeing here recently with all of the Fed tightening talk and all this, we're starting to see this climb again. Um, this is updated daily. So can't really show you this because uh, this is a captured uh, uh, picture, but we're at like 3.74%. So we're not in danger territory because you can see this thing, this thing goes varies throughout, you know, between, you know, basically around slightly under 4% is pretty much the norm and occasionally blow out, right? Uh, this is when, uh, back in 2018, late 2018, early 2019, when Mr. Powell had the uh, his little hiccup last time he was going to try to raise rates. Um, and you saw what happened there. But uh, you see that we're starting to climb a little bit here. It's getting a little bit more volatile. Um, this is something I watch. This is starting to go in the direction we don't want it to go into. And so, you know, we haven't even really seen real tightening by the Fed. We haven't seen any real interest rates. Yes, they've they've peeled back a little bit of QT, but they're still they're still buying bonds in the market. And so we have a lot of volatility in a lot of these 
lot of these markets because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of speculation of what the Fed will do, what they won't do, how many times they're going to raise rates. I'm not a macroeconomist. Economist. I'm not going to try to speculate what the Fed's going to do. I'm not going to try to predict what the Fed's going to do. What I'm telling you is, is that this is one of the tools I use to let me know when the markets are starting to dislocate and when I probably need to start paring down positions. We're not at that point yet, but this is a tool I use and we are starting to move in the wrong direction. If this thing gets above 4% and keeps moving higher, I'm going to be looking to pare back positions because um, the market is beginning to get dislocated. Um, but I'll be looking for, you know, are rates actually being raised and how much? How much liquidity is actually in the market? Now, there's other tools I use too. This is the only one. I use another tool that compares gold to the general commodities. And that's currently starting to weaken a little bit where gold is outperforming uh, like the CRB. That has generally been another um, good indicator for upcoming recessions. And so uh, I just wanted to bring these, bring this to your attention, you know, that it's not a straight linear shot. We're going to have volatility. I can't predict the future directly, but what I have tried to do is find some indicators that I've been able to uh, find from other folks that I've back tested and looked at that have been pretty good indicators of of when liquidity is starting to dry up and when we're starting to going to see more volatility. You know, Stanley Druckenmiller said there's two things that basically move markets. And he said one of them was sediment, you know, the sediment towards the market, the morale of the market, if you will, and liquidity. It didn't say anything about earnings or forecasted earnings. It was sediment and liquidity. Marty Zweig, a guy that I follow, uh, he's dead now, but he was a guy that was pretty active in the 80s and early 90s. You know, he talked a lot about don't fight the Fed and three steps in a drop. That means three rate increases by the Fed, and then the market would drop. Same thing when they cut three times, the market would go up. And so these things are general rules. Now, they're not all set in stone. Uh, I don't mechanically follow these things, but, you know, we're not in the pandemic situation here. But typically what happens with the Fed and you can even see it back here when Mr. Powell had his hiccup in late 2018 when he was going to try to raise rates then and the market dislocated on him. You saw that the spreads blew out to over 5% and he immediately reversed course and then everything settled down again until we had the, COVID, or the pandemic-induced dislocations in the world economy. Now, what's interesting is, is on the liquidity front, it's not just the US. You have to look at the entire world. The entire world overall is tightening, okay, liquidity. That's not good. That's not positive. So we have to keep an eye on this. And like I said, that's why I keep talking about volatility, volatility, volatility. So I just wanted to introduce you. Another thing I look at is, you know, junk bonds specifically. This is JNK. It's the Barclays high yield bond ETF, junk bonds. Basically, that's why they have the symbol JNK. And you can see how it's dislocated, how it's dropped recently, right? Just uh, this year, if you will, which coincides basically with spreads starting to blow out. So people, even though we haven't seen any massive interest rate increases or really super amount of tightening, people are front running this. So uh, I didn't, I didn't push this out 
to you can go on stock charts and play with this chart and get a, a, a late a longer view a more historic view but is this really a chart that you'd want to buy i mean you can kind of see almost a triple top here that has that developed right that it it, it, it blew out below that. So if you want to even call it a double top, triple top, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not going to read chicken entrails on here, but this is not a bullish chart, you will. Now this thing dropped and that looks like it might be recovering a little bit. So, you know, we don't know, but this is not positive for junk bonds and, uh, and for an indicator of liquidity in the overall market. You know, the other thing I want to talk about, uh, which I thought was interesting, you know, in the February issue of the actionable intelligence alert, we got bullish on gold again. And I kind of talked about some of the reasons why, um, you know, we have some gold stocks in the portfolio. And I also, I think, talked maybe two weeks ago or a week ago about Caledonia, one of my favorite companies that I talk about publicly. Um, and the same thing here, you know, did we break out? I don't know if we have a breakout from this basically year long, 18 month long since the, 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 the all time high of 2089. But this is what happens, right? Gold was up, did well in 2019, 2020, and then consolidated through 2021, right? And it looks like we may be breaking higher. And so it was interesting when I was on uh, with Trader Ferg earlier this week, he interviewed me. Uh, it's on Crux Investor. I think it's behind the paywall. Um, but we he asked me about gold. Now, he's not a big gold fan. He doesn't, you know, speculate or invest in gold. But he asked me and I said, yeah, I, I, I'm getting more bullish on gold just because sediment is so horrible towards gold. And it kind of fits into the framework that I'm looking at of why I'm getting bullish on gold. So you have sediment blown out. You just had uh, like Barrick today, I think today or yesterday reported earnings. They have a huge buyback going on. You know, the gold companies, the gold stocks are not like, you know, making the mistakes of the past where they would go out and just drill away all their cash flow or make some stupid uh, acquisition and blow their wad and go into debt. And so what we're seeing here is sediments really low in the gold market. Uh, I kind of talked about real rates being, you know, historically negative, and we didn't see a big reaction in gold. But then the thing I pointed out was, you know, we had two years of pretty good gold gains in gold. We had an all-time high, uh, and then, you know, this is what typically gold sometimes does, right? Then it will just like go sideways or consolidate this huge move from basically 1,100 to 2,000, and then, you know, nothing goes in a straight line. And if you roll this chart out for several years, what you will see is this very well-defined um, cup and handle formation, where if you extrapolate this chart out to the left, it creates like this cup. This would be the handle. And then typically what you see in these type of longer term, now this is over several years, it will happen. It won't, wouldn't happen in just uh, the next week or two, but Typically, what you would see is a break higher from this cup and handle and head off to the upper right. Um, even here in this consolidation, this thing was starting to consolidate into a triangle. And we were waiting for it either to break higher or break lower as it consolidated and became tighter and tighter, this wedge. Typically, these patterns will resolve themselves in the direction of the previous move, which was 
this move that was higher. You go through the consolidation. Uh, buyers and sellers are competing with each other, and it you know gets into a tighter and tighter wedge, and then either breaks down or breaks up. I would like to see, you know, we've had so many false starts with gold, but sediment is so low that uh, I'm feeling, you know, like we may have made the right call here. And we were a little bit premature, I think, in some other calls we made like a year ago. Um, we should have, you know, we thought maybe this was going to be a resolution here, but this is really classic, uh, you know, what, you, what you'd want to see. So uh, with sediment being so low, with this uh, wedge pattern that appears to have resolved or broken through to the, to the um, upside. What we wanna see is a continued move and put some more distance between uh, to the upside here before we see a pullback on profit taking. Uh, what we don't wanna see, we just wanna make sure this isn't a false breakout. We want some confirmation and that's gonna take some time. So over the next several weeks or months, couple months, we'll see if this resolves higher. And this kind of fits into the thesis, um, you could make the case that is this just because of the Russia-Ukraine situation that, you know, a little bit of fear has generated in the world. So this is a safe haven run. Uh, you could make that, you could make that argument. That may be the case. And then as things kind of die down, which they appear to be beginning to do, that the gold price would uh, succumb to that and move lower. But I think that, uh, uh, that may not be the case here. I think what we may be seeing is the fact that, you know, this resolution of this consolidation pattern and the fact that people are starting to realize that how, how high is the Federal Reserve going to raise rates? You know, they're constrained a little bit here too, right? $30 trillion deficit that the United States has. So you're going to raise rates. And then, you know, you can start doing the math on that. If you want to get to one, two, three, four, five percent what that would mean in interest payments. Uh, and then we're still adding a, a trillion to a trillion and a half a year to that debt. Um, and then, you know, you got to remember the Federal Reserve and the federal government put a tremendous amount of heavy lifting into rate increase, rate uh, cuts, quantitative easing, physical, fiscal spending to get us through the demand gap that was created by the pandemic. And so do they want to raise rates really quickly and basically waste all that energy and have like a 50% decrease in stock prices? You know, we have an election, congressional election this year. Do we want to, does the Federal Reserve want to be trying to raise rates in a precarious economic situation and be on the hook for being blamed for causing a recession in an election year. Um, you know, we do have, I think the Fed still believes that, and this is where a lot of this is speculation, guys. I'm not an economist. I'm not, you know, but we have to work from some framework. And so I just don't think, I think that the market's expectations for rate increases is a lot higher than what reality ends up being. And it may be the case that gold is going to sniff this out. And if certainly if we start getting into a, you know, the Fed would like to have some room to cut rates if there's an if there's a potential for a recession. And if you're already sitting on zero, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, so they would like to raise rates, but they don't and they want to deal with this inflation, which I think they still think is transitory in their minds or hoping at least that even the year over year um, comparisons at least come back off these seven percent, seven and a half percent 
and drop to three or four percent. They just do not, you know, they're kind of in a they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. So I think maybe gold is sniffing this out. Maybe this is just a manifestation of a safe haven uh, chicken run because you know when uh, things get uh, scary, people go to gold. Difficult to say. We'll have to see over the next, like I said, several weeks, months to see what happens. But uh, this is definitely positive. I mean, this wedge was getting tighter and tighter, and we were waiting for it to resolve either to the upside or downside. I put no credence into the Russia-Ukraine situation. I was expecting a resolution. That's what I wrote in the February newsletter, that I thought this would resolve either up or down. And based on my least amateurish understanding of technical analysis, that uh, typically these type of things resolve to the uh, direction that they, um, the, the trend that was in place uh, before the wedge was created. And then I said, again, this cup and hand, multi-year cup and handle that's developed could be a tremendous long-term, when I say long-term, the duration of this decade, uh, bullish uh, to the upside formation. So again, we don't want to read chicken entrails, just point these things out and, um, you know, it's very interesting. If this thing continues to move higher uh, and we get above, you know, 1950, and then we conceivably, you know, we're not very far away from breaking the all-time highs. If we're able to do that, then it's a whole new ball game. Something to keep an eye on because I believe there's a lot of room for gold to run on the upside. You know, gold stocks, uh, wanted to see how they would act. They've made a new, this is the GL, GDX, which is the gold miners ETF, mostly larger gold companies. You can see barely broke out to a uh, you know new, new high. This is very volatile. This is all over the place, but you know this is positive. We wanna see this continue to move higher. Um, if gold is to break its uh, price all-time high, we want, we'd like to see this make a new, make a new uh, 52 week high, if you will. Uh, but uh, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. I'm not saying we're in a full-blown gold bull market, but it's something to keep an eye on because really no one's watching gold at all. And this is just a perfect setup from a sediment um, point of view. So uh, back to oil, which is still seems to be in the news. We had you know pulled back quite a bit this week. I think a couple things. Uh, oil's run quite a bit. Obviously, we needed to pull back. Um, things are, like I said before, don't just go to straight to the moon. Uh, the Russia Ukraine thing may be cooling down. Um, you know, you, you can sit here and try to find reasons why the bottom line is the thing has run quite a bit, 20 bucks or so since the beginning of the year, it needs to cool off and consolidate, but, uh, all the fundamentals that we were looking at are bullish still. And, you know, we're in backwardation inventories are continuing to go down. Um, demand continues to go up. We're making another all-time high for this time of year for U.S. demand. Um, so these are all positive things. So uh, we continue to watch it. We continue to expect oil to move higher throughout this year. And, uh, you know, I thought that oil would hit $100 a barrel sometime this year. Um, you know, we may have to change that forecast. We had to change it last year. I thought 80 would be the high. We moved through some of these numbers fairly quickly. So uh, we do need a pause to refresh. But like I said, you know, uh, we, the gold the, or the oil stocks are still not trading to where the oil price is. So that's either an indication that people don't believe in this move 
or they're just lagging because the general investor um, just hasn't caught on to what's going on. And like I said before, we don't need oil to go to $150 a barrel. You know, oil at 70 to $80 a barrel um, and the cash flows are tremendous. At these levels, the cash flows are extraordinary for a lot of the companies that we follow. And so we just want to give some of the news as what's going on in the oil market because it continues just to be one of the most, most fundamentally bullish uh, markets out there. So uh, I will put links to the articles that I reference as I usually try to do, uh, just so you can go check it for yourself and think for yourself and do your own research. It's not me putting a bias or spin on these things. I, everybody's biased, but uh, you know, go look at these articles yourself in these uh, weekly market updates and do your own research. Um, Pioneer, which is one of the big Permian Basin producers, pledges to hold U.S. shale output near flat in 2022. This Earnings reports are coming out, conference calls, and people are starting to report on what these companies are saying. Permian Basin producers' capital budget in line with estimate. Um, Devon Continental also are holding back on production growth. Marathon Oil, which is a big, another big Permian player, which also vowed to keep production largely in check. Investors have been concerned that oil prices approaching $100 a barrel when enticed management teams to ramp up drilling and face the threat of a renewed supply gut and retaliatory market moves by OPEC and its allies. So we continue to monitor the conference calls, monitor what these guys have been saying and make sure what they say and matches what they're doing. And that's it. They're not going crazy, uh, drilling a bunch of wells, living above their means. You know, the, the, the rah-rah drill baby drill days are over. We've talked about this before. We just want to continue to follow up and listen to the conference calls and see what these guys are doing. And they're not going crazy. They're returning cash to shareholders. They're raising dividends. They're buying down, they're paying down debt, and they're buying back stock. That continues. And that is not bullish or that's not indicative of a, you know, big increase in supply in the Permian. Now, there are independent operators out there. There are private companies. They are drilling. You know, if a guy out there in West Texas is an independent oil man that's been doing this for you know 30 or 40 years and he's got some acreage and he can drill a well that he can get a, a tremendous internal rate of return on you know a hundred percent or more 50 percent something like that whatever he's calculating there those guys are going to drill and that's what you're seeing but it's, is is that volume of drilling going to be sufficient to deliver the the oil that we need you know I kind of look at this oil market on the supply side as three-legged stool, right? You have U.S. shale as one stool, and I think we've knocked that leg out. The international, large international integrated oil companies, they're not spending any more money. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have tremendous pressure on them, especially the European companies, like, you know, Total, BP, uh, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, um, whatever, to divest themselves of oil to commit to spending less on hydrocarbon development and spend more on renewables. So that's the second leg of the supply stool gone. And now the call on OPEC, OPEC has to do all the heavy lifting. And as we've demonstrated week after week, month after month, um, OPEC has returned is pledged to return or at least announced to the market that it's going to return, you know, 400 barrels per day of supply uh, for the last several months, and they still haven't been able to do it. 
and they're not doing it because, you know, they don't want money. Uh, they're not capable of doing it. And so, you know, when Ferg and I were talking about this on the interview this week, I, I kept asking him or making the comment because I'm trying to figure this out. Where is the oil going to come from? It's not going to come from U.S. shale. It's not going to come from the integrated international oil companies. And it looks like the call on OPEC plus is not being answered. So where is the oil going to come from that we need? Iran? I mean, Iran does export oil, guys. Don't. It's not just sitting there doing nothing. It illegally exports. The Russian mafia is involved. Stuff goes through Syria. Illegal tankers. Now, it's not what they could potentially do, but what is that? Another million barrels a day? A million and a half? We don't know. That would get absorbed fairly quickly in this type of hot market. Remember, I just said that U.S. demand for this time of year has hit an all-time high. You're seeing pre-pandemic levels of oil consumption being exceeded at um, country after country. And I'm not talking about Denmark. I'm talking about India and China. Okay, so the demand is going to increase, you know, think about as we come out of the winter, we should be building stocks right now. What do I mean by that? We should be building uh, crude oil stocks and product stocks, and we're not doing that. That this market is hot. Like I said, the oil market's in tremendous backwardation, and that is indicating to the market the prices that give me more oil. There's, you know, I don't want to use the word shortage, but the, there's a demand for oil that's not being met in the near term and the market, that's why the market's in backwardation. The price is saying, and the, and the uh, curve is saying, we need more oil, produce more oil. And we're not seeing where that oil is coming from. Again, if you know where all this oil is going to come from, tell me in the comments, because I can't figure it out. So this is Open Square Capital. Somebody else, if I were you, I'd follow on Twitter, but... Uh, here is Devin, um, Marathon, uh, Pioneer, and uh, Continental, I believe, in kind of their CapEx budgets and their 2021 production and their 2022 forecast. Their forecast CapEx budget growth here, but you're not seeing a lot of increase in projected increases in oil production or oil equivalent production, but yet the budgets are going up across the board, but they're not increasing oil production. So it says here, stunned. Could that be EMP discipline holding, production staying low? We're getting off the treadmill like a herd of turtles, probably tortoises. So, you know, we're just not seeing, um, I mean, they're doing what they said they were going to do. This is just another way of showing it. So again, U.S. oil inventories plummet on bullish demand. Product storage enters draw season at multi-year lows. U.S. implied oil demand on a four-week average hit an all-time high above 22 million barrels a day. Wow. We're now at least 2 million barrels a day above demand on OECD. That's the basically developed world organization of economic cooperation and development. That's your Europe, U.S., Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, that kind of stuff. So we're 2 million barrels a day above demand than any analyst demand estimate. So the analysts have got it wrong. They are behind the curve. So we are 
looking at demand being 2 million barrels a day higher than most than all the analysts have forecasted. And as for product storage, we're going into the draw season at one of the lowest coverage ratios ever as at below 28 days of coverage. So this is bullish. That's why the oil price is in backwardation. It's saying, give me more oil producers. So obviously, like I said, nothing goes straight up in the line. Oil kind of finished a little bit weak this week or weaker uh, by the end of the week, but I I'm not worried about it. I mean, right now, this is tremendous what we're seeing. And, um, you know, until we see something change, uh, we have to remain bullish on this market. And um, obviously, we've made a tremendous amount of money to this point. Uh, I think some of the stocks in the AIA portfolio have played out very well. Um, they still have a while to go. But, you know, people are recent subscribers, and they're like, well, you know, no, I can't say that you're going to be 10 bagging from here. The time to get the 10 baggers was back when oil was, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody thought the world was going to end, that's when you have to buy. Yes, I mean, some of the stocks we own could double from here, you know, but the, you know, multi-bagger uh, situation is probably in the rearview mirror, at least with a lot of the EMP plays. Uh, I'm going to show you, uh, tell you why I think, again, why oil services still can be multi-baggers. And I have, you know, People got a little bit riled up, I think, when I said I took down my Athabasca oil um, stock and sold it. Well, I rolled it into services. I don't think, you know, I had like a 10 bagger, uh, depending on what stock, you know, what I had anywhere from nine to 13 bagger on ATH. Do I think it's going to 10 bag from here? No, I don't. But I think there's some service companies that could five bag or 10 bag from here. And that's why, you know, I, I'm rolling the money. That's what you have to do. Now, I haven't sold all my EMP and just went, you know, full ham into services, but I'm starting to, you know, look at the services a lot heavier. And uh, these type of markets, just to think about this, guys, you know, these things don't resolve themselves. Eventually, the price will go high enough where demand will get choked off and a supply response will happen that will be sufficient to bring the oil price back down. This is a cyclical market that will remain, uh, that will not change. Understanding that cyclicality, understanding how to play it, understand how long it takes to quench that oil thirst or get to a price level that will choke demand, um, that is the what you have to kind of understand. And so we're not in the first inning of this move in oil. We're probably in the sixth or seventh inning. So. It doesn't mean there's not gains to be had. It doesn't mean services look really good. They really haven't moved at all yet. And uh, I believe in order to get the supply up, you're going to have to see increased spending. And it will come. I mean, the oil price will get to a sufficient level where even all these shale producers are going to just they're not going to be able to hold it back. They're going to have to they're going to have to start investing, and, and they they're, they're they're not going to leave wells out there that are going to have you know. 150, 200% internal rates of return and not get drilled, that that they will get drilled. And, you know, right now we're in maintenance, you know, they're doing spending maintenance capital, cap, capital on maintaining production and talking a good game, which is good. But at some point, I think it's going to break through and one of them goes, it's going to be like a herd. So this thing will fix itself. I don't know at what level, either demand will get choked off, you'll have a recession, 
or it'll be a combination of both more than likely. So there is opportunity there, but you're not going to get 10 baggers now in EMP stocks for the most part from these levels, in my view. So here's Eric Nuttall. We're talking about this, uh, you know, this is where I made the comment about the three legs of the stool. Here's one. He says, uh, the era of U.S. shale hypergrowth is over. Growth, yes, but not like in years past when it exceeded growth in global demand. Now there is a call on OPEC and the super majors, one which soon they will no longer be able to answer. And it goes on, talks about uh, Devon, which we talked about earlier amongst the other basket of companies that, um, you know, they're going to restrain their, their growth uh, capex. And so we already talked about the global super majors. The call to them is not going to get answered because we already know that they're peeling, they are paring back their spend because they're getting pressure from ESG and from governments and from society at large. And then OPEC plus we know has been pledging 400 barrels per day for the, of new supply uh, for the last several months and has not been able to meet that uh, goal. And so again, where does the oil come from? We're not, we're not sure where all this oil is gonna come from to quench the demand. You know, we're getting ready to come out of this uh, winter season. There'll be a shoulder season in the early spring. And then, you know, there's going to be a summer driving season. There's going to be a lot of vacations. If, you know, people say, have told me, well, you know, a lot of people spent their stimulus checks. Look, if people have credit cards, if they have access to money and credit, they are going to go on vacations. Uh, I think somebody showed it on Twitter the other day. You can't get a room at Disney World right now. It's already booked. Uh, a lot of things are booking out. People are going to splurge. They're going to travel. They're going to, you know, they've been locked up for two years. That's pandemic restrictions are receding everywhere. And um, I think we're going to have a tremendous summer this year, driving season, and with tremendous demand for oil. And again, as aviation demand returns and jet fuel demand, that's not even being factored in. Those those restrictions are going to start getting paired back more and more also. So it's very, uh, it's very bullish. You know, I look for what could be, what could be the, what could short circuit this, right? And I think a real spike in oil prices could crimp demand. Um, I'm not really so much worried this year about the Fed. I don't think they're going to go super crazy with rate increases. As a matter of fact, I think they're going to under deliver what the market thinks. And I think that's another reason why gold and commodities will probably move higher uh, throughout the rest of this year, but we'll see. Um, but I just don't see the big supply response. So the only thing that you can see that's going to fix this market is a price, a rise in prices sufficient to choke off demand. And that's substantially higher than where we're at right now. So I was talking to my wife, she's in <laughs> over in She's been in Ukraine for the last nine months. And so I talked to her, I've been joking with her. Um, I said, there's a big frenzy here in the news here in the US and there's gonna be an invasion and you know the Russians are coming. Uh, what are you seeing? Are you worried? She said, no, no, what, what are you talking about? There's not gonna be, there's nobody here is talking about it. Nobody's worried about it. Uh, this is nuts. Uh, and she's not in Western Ukraine, she's in Eastern Ukraine. So. Um, she is an ethnic Russian, so she has a little bit of sympathy towards Russia, um, even though she's a Ukrainian citizen. 
it's a complicated thing, but this was a, this is the kind of thing I like to see as a contrary indicator, right? Here's a message from Interactive Brokers, Russia, Ukraine conflict, dear, dear IB client, as you are likely aware, the elevated tension between Russia and Ukraine has led to increases in regional and global risks. The situation is fluid and no official sanctions have been announced. We remind clients that holding Russian securities traded on the Russian exchanges, that these assets are particularly exposed to economic and political events, yada, yada, yada. IB cannot guarantee the accessibility to our liquidity in these assets. And clients concerned with such impacts should consider appropriate steps to mitigate these risks. Cannot guarantee the following might be affected. Assets denominated primary, secondary, and rubles. Energy-sensitive assets. Impact on European and global markets deriving from interruptions in commodity and energy supplies. General market risks. So long story short, you know, I look at a chart of RSX that already bottomed like last week or the week before. I kind of publicly announced that I was speculating and moving in. These stocks are tremendously cheap. So if you don't think that the Russians are actually going to invade, which I don't think, and maybe they have, and I haven't just kept up with the news. I'm maybe a day behind. I don't know. But uh, from the reports I'm getting from my people in Ukraine that they're not too worried about it. So this was all, you know, I thought they were going to invade this week. It was funny. The spokesperson for the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs was uh, given a press conference and she kind of was asking the reporters, uh, could you tell me when the invasion is going to be? Because I would like to schedule my vacation and we're, I'm not clear on when this invasion is that we're supposed to do. But if you guys in the press can tell me in the Western press can tell me when the invasion is, then I can schedule my vacation. Around. So there's some sarcasm there. Uh, Lavrov, the foreign minister, likes to poke poke people. Look, the, the Russians play chess. They have the leverage. NATO, you know, is not the other members of NATO, Germany, France. They're not interested in a war in eastern Ukraine. I don't know what these people in the United States are up to. Long story short, um, I've been bullish on Russian stocks for a couple of years. I continue to remain bullish. This is a tremendous buying opportunity, speculative buying opportunity in my opinion. Uh, some of these companies are very, very cheap. The dividend yields are very high. And you know, people have written me and said, when I've mentioned this before, um, well, what about asset seizures? What about all this? What about asset seizures? You could be in Canada right now, and because you support free speech, you can have your bank account seized and shut down. So you tell me who the tyrants are. You tell me who the bad guys are, OK? You tell me who, who steals stuff. I've been getting my dividends from Gazprom for years, uninterrupted. Not a problem. No one's stolen from me from, in Russia. So if you're a Trump supporter, though, and you're sending Bitcoin to the truckers in Canada, then you're an international terrorist and your, your assets will be seized. That's not the Russians doing that. So here's from Offshore Magazine. Demand for floating rigs soars in February. Vessels with MPD um, systems increasingly sought. So I'll put a link to this article. I titled this slide, you got to buy before it becomes obvious. You got to buy before it becomes obvious. I've been having it in the newsletter for probably a little bit over a year. I've got three or four offshore stocks. They really haven't moved yet. They've come off their bottoms, but they haven't moved yet. But we're seeing more and more indication that the offshore drilling market is healing. And the ancillary services and support services that are there are healing. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have this tremendous bull market, 
You know, you look at the OIH, the Oil Field Services ETF and the constituents of that ETF. And, you know, you have a lot of the big names in there, right? Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, some of the offshore drillers, some of the onshore drillers, other companies, Helix, um, specialty. I mean, there's all kinds of companies in there. And if you go look at, listen to some of the conference calls for the majority of them, they are all saying that their businesses are getting better. Now, I'm not expecting a boom time in the oil field services. Again, we don't need a boom because the industry has atrophied and shrunk so much that it's a smaller industry. So that when the capital does come back, um, it's being showered on less companies that are smaller. And so the resultant effect uh, year over year and sales, you know, and this is why I'm looking at a lot of smaller onshore service companies, not necessarily drillers, but other companies that support other activities. And I was looking at the Q3 earnings. A lot of the Q4 hasn't come out. The Q3 earnings year over year were massively bullish and the forecasts were um, massively bullish. So, and still this, a lot of the stock prices really haven't moved um, tremendously. And so again, I think it's, op it's, it's an opportunity if you wait till, I'll give you an example, like TransOcean sells for like 350 a share. So if you wait till it's 10 bucks before you buy it, I mean, you give up all those gains right off the bottom. This is the pro, this is part of the speculating and investing in the kind of things that we do. A lot of times you're going to be early and you're going to have to wait. And that is so hard to do. Like we did in uranium. I mean, we're getting paid. I mean, if you look at my uranium picks in my newsletter all of them are up hundreds and hundreds of percent now can they continue higher yes they probably will go higher but a lot of the big gains have already been made the easy gains were made already do we have to sit through two years since i started this newsletter when nothing happened week after week month after month no news no positive news no news out of the companies they just drift in a range boring and see, but that's how you make the money. That's when you're accumulating Paladin at 10 and 12 and 15 cents. And it's now, you know, at its highs, 52 week highs was almost a buck. So that's how the gains are made. If you wait till it's on the front page of, you know, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, Forbes magazine, it's too late. If it's in Barron's on the front page, you've missed a large part of the move. So you have to get into these things when everybody hates them, um, nobody wants them, sediment's terrible, and you have to be able then to sit there and just refrain from activity. And that is what's difficult for people to do. They, you know, a lot of people, I mean, and they've done it, right? They've turned the markets into a casino, a circus, Robin Hood. I mean, I don't, I don't have a Robin Hood account. I've just heard how it works. You know, even you set the account of balloons and fireworks go off and they turn it into like like one of these slot machines with the at the casino with all the visual and sound effects that are there to stimulate your, you know, pleasure centers in your brain so that you will, you know, spend more money or trade more. And this just isn't how money's made. Um, identifying blown out cheap things that have a catalyst for change and then sitting there. You know, you're going to be early on these things. I'm trying to, you know, introduce some more, you know, well, wait for 
at least a uptrend to develop or something like that. That's what Paul Tudor Jones talks about. But even that's hard to me to do. I just want to, if I have a conviction towards an industry, towards a turnaround in a country or what have you on an asset class or asset, then I want to accumulate as much of that asset as I can cheaply and then, uh, you know, wait for the turn. That's how the really the life changing wealth, you know, one of the things I have to say is there's been probably a half dozen people that have been subscribers to my newsletter. And I don't say this to brag. This is why I take this seriously. I have a tremendous responsibility, but I've had probably a half dozen people write me and thank me for kind of helping them and handholding them and teaching them and maybe even supplying some, you know, ticker symbols in the newsletter that some of these people have completely changed their life. They've created wealth that has changed their life. Some people were able to get through the COVID things with job issues and stuff because they had wealth, they had resources that they had uh, invested or from their investing and speculating after having subscribed to my newsletter having, you know, and I take that seriously. That is, you know, I do this to make money, obviously. Um, I believe that anything that's being done should be done at a profit. But, you know, this is tremendous responsibility. That's why I don't like to be a hack. People say, man, you, dude, you should have 20, 100 times the, uh, YouTube subscribers. I'm not going to go out there and just be a hack and promote. Yeah, buy this gold's going to the moon. Yeah, you know, find out what's hot, has the hard, hottest RSI, go on the new highs list and just pump, pump, pump. I don't do that. Um, I try to be level-headed. I try not to, I try to check my biases. I try not to be a FOMO guy. And I try to, you know, bring the lessons learned from, you know, close to 40 years of investing in the markets, the majority of which I wasn't successful because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So um, I kind of deviated, you know, for a little bit here, but I, I you know, I got to get this out here because this is, there's a lot of opportunity in the market. Okay. And, but you have to do it correctly. And most people just don't do it. They become disillusioned. The stock market sucks. Don't invest in the stock. That's, that's the wrong attitude. You, you have to stick to some core concepts. You know, you have to sell overvaluation and buy undervaluation. You have to understand how to determine overvaluation and undervaluation. You have to have a basic understanding of how to, you know, especially in the markets we deal with of cyclicality and understanding what that means and not be a linear thinker. Understand that these are cyclical type situations uh, everything's pretty much cyclical and understanding that and using that to your advantage gives you an advantage, you know, sticking with things that, you know, we have no advantage. Like I said before, investing in Costco or Facebook, there's so many analysts. I don't know what's going on. I mean, people fly drones over Costco parking lots to figure out, you know, how many, what the sales might be inside the store. I mean, we don't, we can't compete with this, but what we can do is we can operate in niche areas of the market where we can have above average intelligence, above average advantage, and the fact that the large money managers can't, because of the size of the market caps, can't really uh, in, invest where we do because it's, it's too small for them. So that is our advantage. And then being early and not having to report to an investment committee and being able to sit for two years with our conviction. You know, if I would have been a money manager 
and bought all his uranium stocks and nothing happened for two years, I'd have been fired. They would have brought a new manager in. He would have sold everything and did what he wanted to do. And we don't have to do that as private investors. We have the luxury of time and patience as being one of our key advantages. So like I said, we got a little bit off track there, but uh, I feel it's important to talk about these things and remind you, people about how to have success in these markets. So uh, Doomberg, please subscribe to these people. Um, they're really good. Um, they have a sub stack. It's free. I, I suspect it'll eventually not be free, but they are growing really a lot of great articles. But uh, snag this off their Twitter feed. This is what they wrote on their Twitter feed. New, this is drilling and uncompleted wells. New duck report, same quack. Look, I mean, that's what has kind of held up U.S. shale production. We've been... Uh, completing these previously drilled wells where we're getting down to levels that are, I don't know, lower than 2014 now. We don't see anything turning around. This is certainly not bullish for supply. As these become brought online, they deplete quickly, as you well know. And who's drilling the new wells to overcome these uh, these dr drilled but uncompleted wells that are that inventory is drying up? Another bullish indicator in my, in my view. And so I want to talk about this. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. This is an inflation calculator. I'm not knowing how precise this is, but I, I want to give you an idea. Why? Because people say, well, $150 a barrel oil, you know, if we hit that, then that's probably going to be it, right? Because that was the you know, previous high back in 2008, whatever it was. I looked it up on one of the charts. It was like 148 or 158. I can't remember. So basically, I put in here, if in 2008, I purchase an item, which would be a barrel of oil for $158 barrel, dollars a barrel, then in 2022, the same item would cost. So in order to inflation adjust for the all-time high in 2008 of oil, it would have to be $206 a barrel. And so if somebody says, well, oil at 130 or 150 is going to kill the economy, that's not a new high you have to adjust for inflation. The inflation adjusted high would be 206. And typically what happens in these markets is that they usually blast past the previous high. So when you hear people say we could see a spike to 250 or $300 a barrel, that is not unrealistic. That's not probable, I admit, but the, but the chance is a lot higher than zero. Let me tell you that. It's not as low as people think. These markets have a tendency to explode to the upside. You saw what happened in gas in Europe this winter. You were trading uh, natural gas prices at oil equivalents of above $300 a barrel. So it is possible. I don't know how likely it is. Again, I'm not a fortune teller, but you have to consider the inflation adjusted um, price in the context of determining what the real all-time high would be. So to get you know, we'd have to see $206 a barrel or roughly, I'm not saying this is dead nuts on, but it's close enough for, for what we're trying to illustrate here. So you could make the case for easily for $200 to $300 a barrel oil. I don't think it would stay there for very long, but you could have, you know, a blow off top in uh, our stocks and would definitely, like I said, uh, would definitely positively impact your brokerage statement. So I'll put the, a link to this. You can play around with it uh, at your convenience. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, again, 
appreciate the, I get a lot of good feedback, very rarely any negative feedback anymore. The ankle biters seem to have moved on to greener pastures. Got a lot of serious uh, switched on people. Um, I get a lot of comments and emails from people in the industries that we talk about. I find that information invaluable. You guys are out there. You're seeing things that I don't see. And I appreciate the emails. I read every email. I try to respond to all of them. Um, I, if you reach out to me on Twitter, I'll try to, I normally respond to people. If I don't respond to you, please don't feel slighted. I'm a one-man band. I am working a real job. That's like I say, I'm recording this on Friday night for Saturday consumption because I actually have to go and, you know, work on this uh, industrial site that I'm building on Saturday. I work six days a week in a real job. So um, I'm not asking for any sympathy. I'm just giving you the explanation why sometimes the videos are late or necessarily I don't respond to you. Um, same thing with people that are subscribing. That's why I put in the uh, subscription notes. Give me 24 hours to, to get your subscription out to you just because, um, like I said, I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on and I'm trying to keep up with this. So it's going to come to a decision point here, I think, in the next year that I'm either going to have to, uh, you know, I'm going to have to take this full time if I'm going to do it seriously. It's getting to the point where I can't just do it part time anymore. So and it is has been very lucrative. And I do thank you all. You guys have brought me to where I'm at. And I never thought in a million years that people would actually want to listen to what I have to say about things. And like I said, we get a lot of positive comments and I get a lot of um, satisfaction for helping people. Uh, I do take this seriously. Um, people have entrusted me with uh, a lot and uh, I don't take that lightly. And uh, it does, uh, it does uh, mean something to me. So anyways, I want to get all uh, sentimental here, but uh, appreciate you guys. And just wanted to say thank you. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. Take her easy.